0: But now, from June 6th, 1966, uh, sort of keeping up with our earlier theme, uh, Shepard in the Middle East. That's right, Gene Shepard just returned from his trip to the Holy Land from Israel, the Negev Desert, and this is the first of many reports from June of 1966. I believe it's preceded briefly by a little public service announcement that... uh, I'm sure you'll want to pay attention to. For news, in a national emergency, the new emergency broadcast system, EBS, will give you official information and civil defense instructions. Stations will not give call letters, but will identify the area they are serving. Remember, in a national emergency, dial your radio to locate an EBS station. And this is WBAI New York, your station for old stuff.
1: Bubbles, pretty bubbles in the air. La cha cha cha, la cha cha cha, la cha cha cha. Follow the bouncing ball, will you Fred. La cha cha cha. Bring it up there a little bit, corny, thank you. just uh, three days ago. I'm lying in my sack, see? Uh, I say this by way of uh, preface so that you will understand why I am slightly disoriented tonight. For the past two weeks, I have been in the Middle East. I have been as far removed from the world and the reality of New York and uh, the mid-20th century uh, Americana urbanis as it is possible to be without perhaps being at the sea of tranquility on the dark side of the moon. I am lying in my sack. Say, you already in there? Oh, yeah. I just sneak it in there behind me and say, okay. I am lying in my sack and there is a hot desert wind blowing in off the long, gray, brown, gold reaches of the Negev. It's two o'clock in the morning and off in the darkness I can see the low outline of the Moab Mountains just across the border in Jordan. I've got my transistor radio quietly weaving its way between the night-flying insects and the sound of the Middle East. This is just laying there like a heavy cloud all around me. Yeah. smell, just the edge of the Red Sea, just slowly drifting in, as it does at night when the cold air hits the surface of the warm water and raises just the slightest edge of condensation. It never gets far in the desert, but the aroma dies, and you can smell the ancient Red Sea. Oh. After hour, those sounds through the dark night air. Radio Jordan. Radio Iraq. Radio Damascus. Radio Tel Aviv. Hour after hour. And you can see in the moonlight, and I was there the night of the full moon just a few days ago, you can see a Bedouin tent outlined against that black cloud that lays along the side of one of the low sloping hills, a Bedouin tent. And grazing in the unyielding sand just beside the tent itself are two tired camels, 45 goats two sheep, and what appears to be a small one-legged man.
0: (laughs) There.
1: There I am in my sack in a cold sweat with that strange desert wind playing over my forehead. And the moon hung high, and the next morning I was in 12 fathoms of Red Sea. Just let it go into the next one, Corny. That's it. They all sound the same. That's one thing about Middle Eastern music. It's like salami. You see what I mean? (laughs) Oh, that's, That's it. That's it. You know, it's it's hard, I, uh, almost impossible to know where to start. Uh, I have, as I said, I've spent the last two weeks. You probably, uh, well, uh, it's the it's the peculiar. You know, once in a while, I would look at my watch somewhere. Like I remember, I remember sitting uh, sitting on a horse, uh, going up the side of a hill. It was an Arabian, by the way, going up the side of a hill in the Upper Galilee. And, uh, I looked, I glanced at my watch, and I remember saying to myself, you know, uh, I will be on in New York in about 10 minutes. <laughs> it's a very strange feeling to be so removed and so completely cut out and, and hacked off from the, uh, well, we, I, I guess it's almost impossible to realize, uh, the unbelievable gulf of difference, uh of, of uh I suppose you can even say uh not only difference, but it's it's almost like an ocean that exists between so much of the world that you read about in the paper all day long. You know, you read the news items about this country and that country. And they just they just sort of look like type on the page, but the fantastic gulf that exists in reality between those countries and the country that all of us except as so much part of our world and it just is it is our world and uh, I glanced at my watch and this this horse uh, of course you, you've got to understand too that the Galilee district is practically made out of old rocks uh, stuck out of <laughs> out of these out of these arid hillsides and this horse uh, was uh, uh, he far more efficient than I was you you don't mess around with the horse he's climbing over the rocks and grunting and sweating and and once in a while turns and yells at the horse behind him we're struggling up this hillside the, the horse ahead of us finally kicks my horse in the mouth my horse shies and jumps over a, a rock fence and I just stay there, I just stay and, uh, <laughs> and, and the, uh, this, this strange world uh, which is so completely removed from our world not really strange I've, uh, once you're in context with it it is our world that becomes strange then and uh, I guess that's uh, really the uh, the keynote of uh, the human animal. We are infinitely adjustable, infinitely and almost totally adjustable to almost anything that occurs to us. Uh, today, we accept uh, moon travel. I know people don't even look at the television any longer. Uh, moon, pictures are coming back from the moon, and they're bugged because the Beverly Hillbillies are being preempted. <laughs> you know, we were so uh, wait wait a few years uh, there will be there'll be a little uh, Venus probe landing on Venus and it'll be sending back pictures of another planet and people will be complaining that it will be cutting into uh, uh, the news, for example, which is the ironical part of it we, we constantly confuse Walter Cronkite with the news or we can conf- <laughs> we confuse Brinkley and Huntley with the news as though the news a- exists in a separate world from those two. And so I'm, I'm lying on my sack there, you see, and I can smell, I can smell. Oh, there's another thing about the Middle East, as I've always, as I, I remember doing a show on this a couple of years ago. The first time I went to the Middle East, uh, which was uh, only in the late 50s, uh, I went to, through uh, Syria and Lebanon. And one of the things that I always remember about the Middle East, something you never hear about, is the smell of the Middle East. It has a distinct smell no matter where you go. Whether you're in Haifa, whether you're in Tel Aviv, or whether you're in even Jerusalem or Nazareth, or you get to you get to a place uh, uh, like a small desert outpost. That, by the way, is one of the most exciting of all experiences to a modern man involved in today's uh, urban world. Is to get into an, uh, a real outpost. Now I'm not talking about the uh, the uh, Oh, I suppose you might say the romantic picture that we have of the kibbutz. But I'm talking about a genuine desert outpost. Uh, uh, And there were two or three of them that I was able to be involved with or touch on briefly, uh, going through the Negev Desert. And uh, I remember one scene. One scene. You want want to see a typical desert scene. Weird. I have this in my pocket here. A peculiar sense of humor. Uh, I'm driving. We're in a Land Rover. And I'm driving, oh, well that's about it, it's a desert, man. You don't drive through the desert, believe me, and you're in Palo. Uh, and so, we're driving, this is really rough country. I, I, I'm, I don't, I don't whether there is a more bleak, peculiarly beautiful desert anywhere in the world than the Negev. Strange desert. And it's, it's like, it lies in a trough. And off to your right, there's a, there's this, this mountain range that rises uh, a couple of thousand feet, and there's stark mountains. There's no, there's no trees, no vegetation, no green. And way off to your left, you see, you see this other mountain range, Rice Cup, and that mountain range is in Syria or Jordan, depending at the point where you're in the Negev at that time. And the Negev is lying like a big trough, just lays there. And you could smell the sand. It's been baking now for 40,000 years. And there have been one caravan after the other go over this, uh, one, one, uh, one invasion after the other. The Turks and the Romans. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And always the Negev is just there. It just <laughs> it doesn't care who's doing all the running and the yelling. The Negev desert remains the desert no matter what. That's, and I, th- I think this is one of the things that, that gets you about the desert. And so we are driving along. Myself and this guy that I'm with, we're driving through uh, this, uh, this rough uh, single-track road. And uh, the the sand rolls on. And off off in the distance, you see camels. One thing about animals, by the way. Animals are Uh, (laughs) non-denominational. An animal does not know from being a Catholic, from being anything. He does not know he's uh, an American uh, French poodle, for example. Does not know he's an American French poodle. Not a bit of it. And I see these camels uh, off uh, slowly moving in a in a low growth of what looked like to me a western mesquite but it wasn't it was a, a, a local version of uh, a low plant life that grows in the desert very arid uh, very hard rough plant life that looks like it's 20,000 years old there are some trees there they say that uh, that have grown in that desert that uh, authenticated some trees that are over 3,000 years old just uh, uh, just fighting that weather all the time. And these camels are are moving in and out of the trees. Totally wild. Nobody tending them at all. You see no Arab. Nobody with them. And uh, the guide says, you know, he says, you know, the funny thing about Arabs, you know, or rather about camels. He says, you see those camels of them where they see these camels moving along. Have you ever seen camel moving? There's a strange, uh, clumsy kind of grace, which sounds like a contradiction. But it is quite true of a camel camel always looks like he's going to fall over uh he moves but when he lunges when he moves when he walks his whole body goes woo, 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 and he walks And they look and they're very alert and they're, they're very vicious you know <laughs> uh, a camel that is wild is a bad scene they uh, you don't go over and pet the pretty camel and chuck them behind the ears and they spit oh i'll tell you they tell me that a camel Believe me, can knock a fly off the off the trunk of a tree at 40 yards, and decides what eye he's going to hit him in. You, and they just lay it out. So These camels walking along, and the guy that who's in the car with me, we're, we're sitting in the Land Rover, and he says, uh, he says, uh, you know, those are Jordanian camels. Those are, <laughs> those are camels from the other side, this uh, the other country. See, this is an enemy over there. And he says, those are Jordanian camels. And I says, yeah. He says, well, you see, they won't breed over there. That particular area there, they come here to breed. He says, and so they just come down here and they walk along. And this is where they breed. And he says, and then they go back. And so it, there's, there's this strange intercourse in the middle of the jungle. This, or rather, in the middle of the desert. So we drive along about maybe 50 or 75 miles. And here is this, this peculiar vignette. By the side of the road, there is a brick house, and it is baked. It's not a house really. It's like uh, uh, a little uh, station of some kind. Obviously, it's just a little. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's just a little brick square building with a tin roof. It's sitting right there beside the beside the road. Oh, and that sun is baking down. They say that the temperature hits uh, sometimes during the really hot weather. Around 140 to 145 degrees. This is one of the hottest spots in the entire world, you know. We're not more than nine miles from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest spot anywhere in the world. And the temperature is just unimaginable.
0: Speaking of the lowest spot anywhere in the world, you're tuned to WBAI New York, every broadcast of Gene Shepard from June of 1966.
1: Of course, it's very arid. So you can say that for it. There's no humidity, but oh, let me tell you, thirty seconds out in that sun, the blisters are sticking out from your skin like an inch and a half tall. And here, here's this building. It's just a sitting there by the side of the road, building. And there are two men who are stripped to the waist, and and you can see that they are they are burnt so deeply by the sun, so so completely burnt through by the sun. That they that they have a strange kind of animal quality about them. They're so deeply involved with with the the, the earth and the nature of the, of the thing that they're in, the, the desert, that they have this this gaunt, uh, high cheekbones, slit-eyed, leather-skinned quality about them. And these two guys are standing outside of this little hut, this little brick, this little tiny brick shanty out in the middle of nothing, in the middle of the Negev desert. And sticking out of the ground in front of them was a pipe. Just like the kind of pipe that you have in your lawn that uh, brings the water. And sticking out is this little pipe. And the water, there's a little water squirting out of it, you see. And this one guy is sucking at the pipe. He is drinking water. And he's just... And he's got this pipe turned on. And I had no idea what they were doing, what, what this little house was about in the middle of the desert. But these two men, these two gaunt... High cheekbones, slit-eyed guys, one sucking at that pipe. And you see the water dripping, and we we drove past. They didn't even look up. Can you imagine? In the desert, they don't even look up. The, the only car that's been through there probably in the last three weeks, and they didn't even look up. And guys sucking away. And we go, we drive past, raising the dust. And one guy sort of casually just watches us a little bit, and you can see his ribs sticking out, and we were roaring off into the desert, and that was the last scene. And right now, at this moment, at this, right this instant, those two guys are still out in the desert. Don't ask me what they were doing. Uh, <laughs> because I asked the guide what they were doing. He said, I don't know. He says, I don't know what that is. He says, it's some kind of an oil pipeline or something they work on, and that's it we were roaring off into the into the uh, distance. We were heading south down towards the Red Sea. Uh, before we go any further, uh, speaking of deserts, this is WOR AM and FM New York.
0: And once again, this is WBAI New York.
1: <laughs> and uh, we've got with us Rover, which leads me to... Uh, I, I'm not... Uh, it's a funny tie-in, but we've got with us uh, the Rover car... And I didn't even mean to, there's no connection with the commercial, but uh, the Rover 2000 TC, which you heard me talk about, is built by the same people who build the Rover. By the way, uh, if you get a chance to see this movie, I I saw a preview of it. It's one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. Uh, Born Free. I never could conceive of how they could make this into a movie, and it is superb. And one of the chief actors in this movie is a Land Rover. On the top of which, this monstrous lion sleeps. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, uh, these are the same people who build the Rover 2000 TC. And if you're looking for a great car, we would like to suggest you find out about this one. It is great. And while we're on the subject of man's ills, uh, we have a note here from Targaard, which we've been talking about for a long time. And it is to this effect, every regular cigarette smoker, whether he smokes filters or not, lives with an absolute fact. He will be taking as much as a pound of hot, sticky tar into his guts every year. And uh, this uh, space-age technology, what it really is, is the Venturi principle. We could go into that. It's the same principle that you use in your refrigerator. Uh, The tar guard literally uh, distills out of the smoke that you smoke. It distills the, uh, the tars, and it makes you sick. I'll tell you, if you see people smoke about five cigarettes, and then they open this thing up... Oh boy! It looks like 45 dead grasshoppers have uh, have left their mark. Uh, it does. It, it looks like that stuff they used to call tobacco juice. You remember when kids would catch a a uh, a grasshopper and you get the grasshopper to spit? You ever get one to do that? That's called tobacco juice. It looks exactly like. Well, I, I guess kids didn't know that it really is tobacco juice. So uh, this is tar guard. You'll find it at your drugstore, your cigar store, and I'd suggest you pick one up. It might save something. Out of what's left. Now let's get back into the world of. uh... You want to hear some, uh, one of those one of those strange little notes? I hope this uh, talk of uh, this. Uh, I'll have to explain uh, before I go any further. The preface of this. I went. Uh, I've, I've traveled, as you probably know, those of you who've listened to the show for any number of years. I have traveled around the world a couple of times, and uh... I've been I've been many places. Uh, I've been to the regular places that uh, the usual American tour. You know, there's a big difference between a tourist and a traveler. Uh, to me, uh, the tourist is, is on a very different kind of, of journey than a traveler is on. Uh, a traveler is usually an ex-tourist. Uh, there's a big difference between the two, though. Uh, he is, uh, he's, not, he's, not, uh, he's not going after the same thing. I suppose you might say it's also the difference between a man who spends his time reading uh, big potboiler bestsellers, you know, the Marjorie Morningstar, uh, uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the Rona Jaffe-type uh, turkey, as opposed to the person who is interested in literature. There's a big difference between, and, and, and they're both reading, you see. They both can be called book reading. And so, after having traveled for a couple of years, I became a traveler. I found myself. Uh, looking at a country with a knowledgeable eye, uh, you, it's like a man who becomes almost a, a, a connoisseur of wines, you know. After, at first, when you drink a wine, all wines taste the same, but after you've had a few wines, you begin to tell the difference. And then after a while, you can tell the difference within the differences. And, uh, ultimately, you become some kind of a connoisseur. But, uh, this trip, which I, which I just finished, Uh, was a trip that was different to me uh, in most ways because uh, I was going into a part of the world for a specific reason that I don't often travel for. And that was just to, I suppose you might say, indulge myself. Uh, I did not go to look at monuments, even though there are monuments in the Middle East. I say that once you've seen a ruin, you've seen pretty nearly all the ruins. (laughs) <laughs> I've, and I've seen plenty of ruins. As a matter of fact, you know, the curious thing about ruins uh, is that I'm more interested in human ruins uh, than I am uh, interested in stone ruins. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I remember, of course, the little incident. I remember being in a hotel uh, elevator in Haifa. And uh, there were seven fascinating human relics riding in this elevator with me. And all of them had blue hair, in case you're interested, and flowered pink dresses. And <laughs> they were they were they were on a tour, and uh, you can understand after you're you're in a country for a while why so many countries begin to have a very bad attitude, or a, let's put it this way, a jaundiced attitude towards the American, because I don't think there's a country on the face of the earth that turns out more tourists than America turns out, and so few travelers. We turn out tourists almost like Detroit turns out cars. And they all have the same uh, guidebook in their hand. Uh, they all have the the same uh, irritated look on their faces because they went down to the desert restaurant, and it turns out they didn't have fresh orange juice. And uh, oh boy, I'll tell you, uh, these people, these people. Sometimes you you you, get, you sit there and you hear them talk, and you 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 put your head down. And you say, oh oh, come on, gee whiz, you know, I'm an American too, and look how rotten you're making it seem, and there's some lady yelling because the ice water ran out in her room, and you're in the middle of the desert, and she's very irritated about it. And so ultimately you begin to have this sense of, of, uh, why don't, uh, I think think there ought to be some campaign to uh, educate Americans before they go overseas uh, to somehow, uh, somehow at least keep your mouth shut for a couple of minutes. Uh, don't look out over the uh, the Mediterranean and say, you know, I think Jones Beach is better. I actually heard that. Now I'm not arguing whether it was or it wasn't. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. I I heard a girl, I heard a girl uh, look out over that fantastic deep blue Mediterranean with that golden sand, and she says, Ah, so what's with this? At least they can get, you can get some hot dogs at Jones Beach. And she said it with this loud voice that just echoed and echoed. And all these people sort of turned and looked. And I, I, I had this sad feeling. But uh, anyway, uh, the, the things that I did in this, this country, I was in Israel, in case you're interested. I, I went to skin dive. Uh, I went to, uh, to experience physically uh, the Middle East, which is some of the most exciting real estate. In the world, anywhere. And, and uh, here's a little note. I, I, I copied this. Here, I've got it here. I've, I've carried this in this wrinkled little piece of paper for 40,000 miles. I am coming along the edge of this incredible canyon in the Nagat. It is a canyon that looks like the granddaddy of all canyons. The sheer drop-offs of the cliffs drop maybe 1,500 feet ...down to this canyon floor, absolutely arid. There isn't a blade of grass that's in sight. And the horizon is 400 miles all around you. And that brassy sky hanging over it. And here's this fantastic cavern. Just, and you can see the road that you've come over, stretching like a snake on and on and on and around and on and on until finally it disappears in this great gully that goes on. It's called, it's called the Wadi. It's called the, the uh, well, there's a gulf, a great crack in the earth that goes all the way up through somewhere just off the coast of Europe, cuts down through Turkey the geologists have charted this, goes down through the ocean, cuts over Africa, and ends somewhere in the middle of the Nagab. If you took the Earth, just looked at the Earth, as a globe, there's a crack in it. And this is part of that fantastic crack. Well, here it is, it's just laying down, and the sun is beating down. We've come through this, this long thing, and we've, we've slowly inched up the side, this spiral trackway that leads up the side of this, this uh, precipice until we've reached the top of this thing. And they're sitting right on the top, the greatest location you've ever seen in your life. In- incredible location for a a little coffee shop. It's perched right on the edge of this cliff, and it's got this little little uh, patio. You go out on it. It's got a few camp chairs, and you are literally looking straight down 1,500 feet, and you can look out over this over this gully that stretches for hundreds of miles on all sides. You can just, you see a truck moving down through, way, endless way, and a little cloud of dust behind it. Well, here's this thing, and off to the left, you can see the hills of Jordan, the enemy. And there it is, just laying in the sun, hot and silent, nothing. And we walked up to the to the doorway of this place, it's a little stone enclosure, there's a little glass door, and we pulled this thing in, and we walked, walked in, here's the owner sitting there with this, one of his friends. And, Sort of uh, leaning over a cup of Turkish coffee, which, by the way, after you drink for a week or so, you get so that you wonder how you ever drank any other kind of coffee. In case you're interested in uh, that <laughs> that side of it. And uh, they're both drinking this coffee, and you can see the sun crashing in through the through the windows all around this place. It's dead silent, not a not a sound. And I walk in and I order my coffee, and I go to the John. And on the way back out of the john, here's here's a uh, uh, a blackboard hanging where they write the menu, And here is the thing written on the blackboard. He has written it in chalk. Listen to this. Give, give me a little of that music. Just to sneak in a little bit. Listen to this. Hot. Oh, the sun is roaring down. Absolute silence. Nothing. You're in that. You're in the last... They call it the end of the world, as a matter of fact. They literally refer to it in that that area as the end of the world. And here, written on his blackboard, in chalk, is the line, You are in the Negev Desert. And then he continues. Little water. Little electricity. Little transportation. Little manpower, little food. And then the next line, big trouble daily. And then he ends it, please think of all this before you complain. strange place to have a sense of humor you are in the negev desert think of this before you complain and we're sitting there and drinking our coffee and i look at this thing and i write it down saying I I, I I i here's part of his little napkin see and i go over there and i write this thing down and i come back and and the the guy the guy who was taking me through the desert is a romanian and boy a hard tough romanian I don't know whether you've ever known a Romanian, but these are very special people. He kept saying, Unbelievable. (laughs) He'd look up at the mountain, he'd say, Unbelievable. I'd see you're right. See, unbelievable. He's been looking at these same mountains for twenty years and he still says, Unbelievable. Look at that. And then we go another another fifteen miles. And the sun is getting lower and lower like a great big round blood red disc. It's beginning to cool off and the partridges keep running. The, the Negev Desert, by the way, is just is just crawling with wildlife. But you have to look very carefully to see it. Partridges, whole it's like like flies. They run up and down the hills and great storming flocks are... <laughs> and they run across the road. <laughs> These Negev Desert partridges... And you can see, you can see the tracks of camels that have moved up over the hills. And we stop with that big blood sun. He says, unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I says, but Ziggy, you've seen this for 20 years. Unbelievable. And we drive on. And that's what the desert does to you. You, you just can't stop. Now, I have known people who think that the desert is ugly. I have known people who are frightened by it, just to look at it. I have known people who have been transported by it. Uh, this, by the way, in case you're interested, is some of the country that Lawrence of, of Arabia really worked in uh, during World War I. And uh, for those of you who saw the picture, uh, this is partly the world that he, he just encroached on this area, Don around elat which is where we were heading for if you get out your map take take a look at your world map and you'll see where this is Uh, you'll see Saudi Arabia and you will see the Red Sea Uh, you'll see Egypt all of them coming together right down there in one long point Uh, Israel comes down on the point and the Negev desert is the whole lower part of this triangle which reaches right down to the edge of the sea And there's a tiny dot on the map called Elat. Now, I found out some interesting things, at least interesting to me, that if you take a look at a a map of uh, the Negev, or if you take a a look at the map of uh, that part of uh, Jordan, or that part of uh, uh, Egypt down around the Red Sea, you'll see towns marked on that map. You'll see names, little black dots. Well, it is only when you're there... That you learn that these are non-existent towns. They are towns that are biblical names that maybe existed 3,000 years ago and no longer exist. There's just nothing but long, flat expanse of sand. And there's a little note there, something like Adabel Ali Sham, a name like that. You wonder, well, where is it? And there's a little sign that points there. There's that big, flat expanse of sand. It is a place where people once lived thousands of years ago, and they still are on the map. It's a little eerie to uh, drive along, the, to skirt the edge of the Red Sea and come on a, on a sign that simply says, Sodom. We were in Sodom. The famous Sodom. Of Sodom and... <laughs> and uh, there it was. And I uh, thought, gee, it's kind of funny, you know, be here, and, and, you, you wonder, you wonder how people could have had so much fun in such a fantastically rotten place. You look around, and there's nothing but waste. It's just unbelievable waste. As Ziggy, my, my uh, Romanian friend, is, isn't that a great name, Ziggy? As my, as my Romanian friend Ziggy was unbelievable. He looks out, and here is this wasteland, and there's this little lonely sign that says Sodom. I'm waiting for Hilton to open a hotel there. I kind of like the idea of the Gomorrah Hilton. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then you drive, we drove on past, past Sodom, which is just a sign. And uh, you, you, you can understand in a way, I mean, if it was like that in the days when Sodom and Gomorrah were really in business, you can understand why the natives had one fantastic ball. There wasn't much else to do, <laughs> after all. And the uh, uh, la- laying up against that is this sheer cliff, and outlined against the sky. And uh, oh, incidentally, this sheer cliff is composed of of a mountain. Not really a mountain. It's a cliff. It's like a long, high, uh, craggy, rough-looking, impassable ridge. It looks like a mountain really, but it looks like a cliff and a mountain all combined. Totally made of salt. It's this white, gleaming. Strange, uh, cutting salt. It's salt. And they're mining the salt there. This is a genuine salt mine. You've always heard of being sent to the salt mines. Well, they've got them there, you know. And, and you see this, 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 uh, it's kind of a pillar standing up against the skyline. And he says, That is legendary. That is the legendary. He says You see, legend. says, see, look now. Now, watch. When we get to this point, and he says, I stopped the. I stops the car and I watch. See? See that up there? Look, look. See the sun? That is Lot's wife. And that is a legendary sight. This pillar of salt that is part of the legend of the area. Of course, it's a legend, you see, but that's legendary that this is Lot's wife, this pillar of salt standing up against the sun, with the wind howling around it. And this is Lot's wife. <laughs> so, so we drove on and about, about, uh, oh, maybe 10 or 15 miles further on, here are two, three people sitting on the side of the road. Uh, an old man, he must have been 85, and a young woman. I would say she was probably around 30 or so, and a little tiny kid. And they're just sort of huddled there next to the road with a fantastic sun laying down on them. The sun is just, oh, it's, it, the sun in the Dead Sea area has to be felt to be believed, and then even then you can't believe it. you know the Dead Sea when you start driving down into to get down into the Dead Sea, you drive through well i I can only say this uh, having seen the pictures from the moon now I would say that this area looks a heck of a lot more like what you thought the moon should look like, but the moon really doesn't. Uh, from the pictures that have sent back, the moon looks pretty dull, doesn't it? But uh, this landscape is the wildest, the most insane landscape I've ever seen in my life. And we came winding down through these fantastic rock and salt cliffs, just just high. They tower above you, and they cut down deep into the earth. And as we drive, can you imagine going down so deeply into the earth, into a into a huge trench in the earth, that your ears pop? As you go down, it's unbelievable, as Ziggy would say, unbelievable. Well, we slowly snaked our way down, and we stopped about halfway down. And uh, we got out of the car and uh, walked over to the side of the road. Here's a cliff that dropped off straight off down, and you could see these, these gullies and these gnarled and twisted little hills and, and cuts. It looked like it was almost totally uh, unapproachable. And Ziggy is pointing. He says, see now, look. He says, here. And he rushed back into the, into the uh, rover, and he got out a pair of binoculars. And we are looking straight down. And he says, now, you see over there. He says, now, watch. Over there to the right. Just a little bit. See this big rock there? And I says, yeah. He says, now, to the right. Now, look. look. you see that little hill down there? And I says, yeah. He says, now, do you see on the top of the hill what, with that little straight line there? And I says, yeah. He says, let me tell you. He says, you wouldn't believe it's unbelievable what that is. And I said, what is it, Ziki? He says, that is a Roman fort from the 3rd Legion. He says, one day when my army unit, we, was, we were working through this area. He says, and during the war, they always call it the war. This great war that they had with the Jordanians and the Syrians. He says, we were on patrol down there. And we discovered this Roman fort. He says, and it is... There, you see it down there? And I says, well, hasn't haven't anybody uh, gone down there to uh, archaeologists and investigated what's there? He says, well, he says, there's, there's many things here that he no one has looked at yet. And I'm looking down there, uh, through these glasses, and there is this little square. And you can see it's what's left of a Roman fort of the Third Legion. And so we continued on down to the Dead Sea itself. And there it is, the Dead Sea. Uh, just strange looking. It isn't really a sea; it's a lake. Any place else in the world, it's a lake, but it is a lake of such viscosity, such brackishness, that uh, y- you can't comprehend this. It's like it's like uh, it's the water is literally thick, like number ten oil, and yet it's the most beautiful blue green color. It looks like a jewel lying there. Just like a beautiful jewel. And all around the lake itself is this incrustation of salt. Thick and white. It looks like the, the lake is rimmed with a high snowbank. It just lays all around. And the hills, of course, it's in, a, it's in a huge bowl. And on one side of the lake is in, is in uh, Jordan, and this side of the lake is in, is in Israel. And nothing. Total silence. And down on the shore, there are two or three little old ladies who have been brought in by car to float in this brackish water for their arthritis. And the water is hot and uh, has a curious quality like old bath water, but thick old bath water. But it's a beautiful green color. And the bottom, as you stand and look in at the bottom, it 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 is a strange, unearthly bottom. A kind of a yellowish, whitish sick kind of bottom and it slants away quickly and I ask Ziggy how deep this lake is he says well they say maybe 3,000 feet this lake is a deep thick trough that lays down there and you can smell the water well we drove on up past up past the lake and finally we came to these three people sitting there they have missed the bus the one bus that goes through there every day that heads down to Elat and they have missed it. And we picked them up. And these these people got this old man, this jovial old character who'd lived in the desert all of his life, and this girl who was his daughter, and this little tiny grandson who just looked at me with these big eyes. Never he spoke no English. He just looked at me all the time. And instantly when they got in the car, the old man takes a big basket and he rips it open. And he gives both of us grapes, these big, fantastic grapes that they grew in the area where he was living. Seriously, grapes. And he gave us the grapes and we drove on through the desert with that sun just just skimming the edges of the hills. And then about 15 or 20 minutes later on, we, we moved past King Solomon's Mines. Do you want me to tell you about King Solomon? This is the real King Solomon, you know. And these are his mines. You know what he mined there, don't you? These were copper mines. And uh, copper, in those days, was almost like the gold of today. And it was these mines that made King Solomon one of the great rich kings of his time. And there they are, still being worked. King Solomon's mines, just an hour or so from Sodom, right next to Gomorrah. ...on your way to the ancient Red Sea. Do you want to hear more about this tomorrow? We have just begun to scratch the surface. Tomorrow night, I'll tell you about Shepard... ...at 12 fathoms. Shepard skim-diving. One... <laughs> ...swimming underwater for one mile... ...along this fantastic coral reef. The same reef that... that uh, ...Casteau... ...Captain Yves Casteau... ...of the French Army... Uh, filmed almost all of his famous film, The Silent World. Did you see this? And I am swimming and all of a sudden, we are at the Egyptian border underwater. Do you want to hear about that tomorrow? Oh, keep your knees loose.
0: And we will get back to Shepard's Adventures Holy Land at some point. This has been Mass Backwards. Next week, well, more of the same, no doubt. Gene Shepard from... I was waiting for the music to go out. Uh, from uh, June 6, 1966. Back from Israel. And uh, I'll be back tomorrow night. Filling in for Susan Brown with the Scratchy Record Review. My birthday show. That's right. By the time I hit the airwaves tomorrow, I will uh, have turned 50 years old. Good Lord. Choke. Uh, So uh, we'll be dragging in a lot of 45s, original scratchy, worn-out records of my youth, about 1960 to 1963 or so. Whether we'll go into the the British invasion, we'll see.